0: This is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, uh, Spirit Matters. Found at SpiritMattersTalk.com, and if I could watch all of, uh, ask all of our listeners and viewers to hit the subscribe button. It doesn't cost anything, but we would appreciate it. Also, I want to start by uh, thanking everyone out there who's contributed to help keep us on the air. We are not a nonprofit. It's not a donation, but the contributions uh, help keep us going and and help keep our show and our uh, archives, which have about 300 shows in them, interviews in them, uh, open and free to the public. Uh, many great guests, and another great guest today. Uh, our uh, guest today is Amy Edelstein, Edelstein, uh, author, <laughs> educator, and public speaker. Uh, she is the founder and executive director of Inner Strength Education a nonprofit organization that supports youth development, and I should mention, its innovative team mindfulness and systems thinking program has empowered over 17,000 high school students in the under-resourced schools in Philadelphia. Amy is also the co-founder of Emergence Education Press, which is dedicated to bringing insightful and transformative ideas to the fore so that we can create a more compassionate and inspired world. Amy, thank you so very much for taking the time to come out to speak with us today.
1: Thank you. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it.
2: Great. And we should also mention that we'll be talking about your uh, new book, Adventure in Zanskar, along with your other work. But let's begin where we usually like to begin with asking our guests to give a brief overview of um, their spiritual history. What uh, got you... Mm-hmm. interested in the, the realm of spirituality and what brought you to this uh, work and education that you're doing?
1: Like probably many of your guests, it's a long story that could take <laughs> many, have many different interpretations. With you, I'll say that I had my earliest spiritual experiences that I remember when I was about eight and i grew up in a secular jewish family my father was a particle physicist and he happened to go on sabbatical to israel we had no real jewish identity at that point and i loved it there and i wandered around the ruins and i remembered things i remembered things in the desert i felt i learned the language really quickly I felt at home in a way that I had never really felt at home. I had a good family, There were, you know, but I just all of a sudden kind of connected to almost like a different continuum or stream that was familiar, deeply familiar. Nobody else in my family had that experience. I kept a journal at the time. I started writing when I was that age, and I was a voracious reader, and I wrote about spiritual matters, about life and death, about what continues. I had a pet parrot that died and the parakeet. And I wrote all about death and continuation. And I was really pondering those questions and I was deeply happy. I felt at home. So that really set me going. I started (laughs) studying. I went to, we were in a reconstructionist congregation which was very liberal. And I grew up in Pittsburgh, so I in the '70s. So it was a very cynical time in the '70s, and I was a hippie, kind of angry at the world and angry at the '60s for not working out and wondering what was next. I had a friend who uh, taught me meditation, and I had a couple books. I'd be here now. I had Autobiography of a Yogi. And those were the two books that got me going. And Richard Hiddelman's 28-Day Guide to Yoga. (laughs) He was was an early yogi teaching LA housewives how to flatten their tummies. And I started meditating with his book. And then at night, I went to Hebrew high school. So I was learning Jewish ethics and I was immersing myself in meditation. And I was in the counterculture of the 70s in a city that, had no alternative culture. I mean, Pittsburgh was just really industrial family immigrant. So long story short, I kept seeking. It led me many places. And in college, I started uh, studying some Eastern teachings. I went to Kripalu Ashram in uh, I think in 1980, when it was still in Pennsylvania for a couple weeks. And I met Ada Roshi, who did a lecture at Cornell where I was studying. Um, eventually, I left school ostensibly to go to Japan to write a paper about rural women's role in Japan. But I, I went to Thailand and I turned left and I followed the stories that I heard about Burma and I went to this Buddhist country, which I loved. Then I went to Nepal. I started doing longer retreats and when my visa ran out in Nepal, I went to India and I spent the better part of four years in North India. And that was really where I studied with Buddhist teachers, Hindu teachers. Um, I studied with the Dalai Lama's tutor in Dharamsala in the early 80s, Kirti Sensha Rinpoche, and I was at Shivananda Ashram with the great Swami Krishnananda and Swami Chidananda. I did retreats with Western Buddhist teachers, whoever I could meet, I met. And uh, eventually I ended up coming back to the West and was one of the early members of a residential meditation community where I lived for 27 years doing research practice, um, really working closely with a small group of people to explore consciousness, integral theory, evolutionary philosophy, writing for a magazine, interviewing people. And so I've spent the better part of
0: uh, 40 years on the path. Um, let me, let me ask you, uh, what's well, a fascinating journey you've been on. And, and, uh, we, most people on our show have had fascinating journeys, but yours, uh, had more twists and turns and probably more exposure to different traditions than, than, uh, than most. Uh, and my question, uh, uh two questions, uh, would be number one, was there one teacher that really stood out for you that became your teacher or guru or, somebody that you put, um, uh, as your primary, uh, uh, teacher. And, uh, the second question is when you started to teach and share all the knowledge that you learned with others, did you uh, follow a particular, uh, 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 angle on it? Did you, was it a particular technique, uh, or did you sort of, um, take, a, a sort of a conglomeration of everything that you've studied and, and create your own sort of, uh, focus of teaching? So those, those two questions.
1: I, I would say really, I've had so many influences. And what I found was that in the greatest teachers that I was with, they always were to, to one degree or another, even if they were within a tradition, they were lights unto themselves. And so the lessons that I took were, were to study and learn and discern and go with what worked for me. What were those insights that catalyzed my own deepening? You know, we all have spiritual glimpses, we all have Satoris, we all have those profound moments where the veils of separation part, and we know without a doubt that consciousness is, is one and cannot be separated, and that that is our inherent nature. But what does it mean to live that? How do we live that? What does it look like in our culture? there's so many different understandings and you know oftentimes the program that i the program that i founded um, really comes from those insights that worked best for me and sometimes i wish that i could don robes and uh, be part of a 2000 year old lineage so that I would know exactly what the right next step was and exactly what to do in the morning and exactly you know <laughs> what to do with this state of mind. Um, but it, it would feel disingenuous. So I've done a lot of deep practice and that's where I've come to. And I feel like there are some who are called to a, to a lineage or a tradition and there are some in our modern world who uh, have the harder path of of really going as deep with as much discipline, mm-hmm. but without some without a charted path.
2: Mm-hmm. Very good, Amy. Um, let's talk about the um, inner strength program, um, because what you what you described is. The challenge, I'm sure, all of our listeners, including Dennis and me, right. uh, 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 have um, wrestled with for decades, uh, namely, uh, you know, applying perennial wisdom to to life in today's world and our lives, in unique lives in particular, um, and you uh, in engaging young people in school systems have to adapt to the requirements that that entails. You, you, even if you wanted to, you couldn't do certain things. Exactly. So tell us about the program first and, and what brought you to it and how you've uh, addressed those issues.
1: Yeah. What I did is, I took those things, like I said, that worked for me and tried to translate them in a way that would be accessible and appropriate for public school education in uh, Philadelphia is the poorest of the 10 largest cities in America.
2: Mm.
1: There is a level of deep intergenerational poverty here that uh, rival some of the worst places I've seen in India. It's devastating. Um, I had lived in uh, rural Massachusetts for 17 years before coming here, and it it was it was so hard on the heart to see the um, the the lack of basic resources access to Mm -hmm. knowledge to libraries to books to clean water to supermarkets and philadelphia is a small city you can really walk from side to side in 25 minutes you know there's north and south um, and it extends and it sprawls a little bit but i live walking distance from the liberty bell from where our constitution was written. I can walk by the place where Thomas Jefferson wrote and where they used to drink Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and where they talked about building a country that could, where people could thrive and their higher human potentials could be released. And we're in a reality that is so desperately far from that. So translating what I had learned, having the, had the luxury and the privilege of being able to do a lot of deep meditative practice was interesting. And I decided to go with the basic mindfulness techniques, you know, Theravadan techniques, mindfulness on breath, body scan, love and kindness. Um, and also teach the students some of what I would learned about an evolutionary perspective. So they learn about 300 million years of brain science and how the evolution of the brain influences our feelings now. So what's happening as an adolescent, there are certain things happening in the brain. There are a lot of evolutionary tricks that make the brain form that way that teens learn about that. And they start going, oh, you know, the reason why I listen to my friends and not to my mom, is not because I'm just a rebellious good for nothing. It's also evolutionarily programmed into me to bond with my peers because 150,000 years ago, our parents' generation was about to die out when we were teenagers. We had to bond with our network that was gonna help us survive. Hmm. I also teach about large-scale cultural shifts. So that really comes from an understanding of you know, comes out of integral theory, out of different um, evolutionary philosophies that look at how we, in the postmodern times, in our contemporary era, we have more individuation, more choice, and less social support. Earlier times, simpler living, we had less opportunity to express our individuation, but we had more social support. So I take the kids on a guided meditation back 800 years and what did they wear? What did they eat? What did they sing? Who did they go to for advice? Then we fast forward. We get a sense of what life is like now and they start to contextualize their sense of being lost and uprooted and their love of their ability to have their own hairstyle, their own song list, their own dance moves. Um, It's been really powerful. We've done research on the program which has been published in peer review journals. Uh, we consistently show an increase in self-compassion and self-regulation and also an increase in some other metrics that um, are indicative of long-term stability. Right. So that's quite something. Wow. Um, but I tell you, we are in an uphill battle. Uh, last week, one of that, one of our high schools, we lost a senior he was shot in the chest walking home from school.
0: Hmm. Terrible.
1: And it's not the first time it's happened. So I am, I went from this rarefied time in India and meditation to the stuff on the news is actually the stuff that I'm dealing with. And
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Amy, uh, uh, about your experience going and working with kids in the public schools. Back in the early, in the 70s, my father was a school principal in Union City, New Jersey, which is very urban, right by Jersey City, right by the Lincoln Tunnel. And uh, he, uh, I got him involved in TM, and he was very enthused about it, and he got it into the schools uh, where he was. not and, and the experience was, and I'm curious if this was your experience, kids had great experiences. The teachers that got involved in it had great experiences, but there was a big pushback from um, certain communities, certain religious communities or whatever that you can't have this, you know, so... Have you had that experience in Philadelphia? I mean, you've been involved with 17,000 kids. Have you had any pushback from, uh, from uh, boards of education or, or, or parents or religious groups that you shouldn't be doing this in the schools?
1: We're, I've always been very careful to really, and the, the thing that helps having a deep background in Vedanta and in mm-hmm. Buddhism, that I know what the roots of things are so a lot of people who don't have a lot of education and haven't studied some of the original texts, they don't know that they're actually imposing Eastern tradition on Christians or Jews or Muslims. And if you under, if you have a better background in world religions, you can make those bridges, you can secularize it, or you can describe how this shows up in different traditions and accommodate uh, many different perspectives. Also, there's, there's a recognition now that didn't exist in the 70s, 80s, 90s, right. and even in the aughts, that there have been enough uh, evidence, research studies that are credible. Right that show that this can be supportive for trauma, it can be supportive for anxiety, can be supportive for negative rumination and a lot of the things that individuals, not just teens are struggling with right Right. now. So I think that we're just living in a different time than then, fortunately. Amy- Revolution.
0: Revolution, yeah.
2: How old or how young are the students that you work with and was there anything in your background that um, qualified you? Were you? Did you study education? Did you have a credential? How did you get you into to the school, the school without, <laughs> if you didn't have that? You must have, yeah. Um, I,
1: I didn't, I don't have a degree in education. I did study educational theory, regional development and political science. So I was roughly in that area. Um, but I put together a good program. It went through, uh, it's been recommended as a, a social emotional learning program by CASEL, the collaborative for academic social emotional learning, which is a two and a half year approval process Mm where you have to have third-party research with a control group. So I, I, I published a curriculum that was well laid out and was able, we could replicate it with, um, with fidelity so that my teachers were all teaching the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I work with my teachers once a week so that everyone's getting professional development. So everything has been uh, developed in order to comply with the standards of a public school education. And, and I think that's important. I think anyone who wants to bring a program into the school system should have a lot more rigor than if they're teaching adults on a weekend or in a center or in a gym. I think it needs, you know, this is education and it there are certain standards and that are there for a reason. So I think that's what helped me get into the schools because I was able to respond to all of their questions
2: and the age range
1: 14 to 19 so ninth oh. to 12th grade
2: great uh, I'm
0: curious uh, you mentioned earlier that the, your father was I believe a particle physicist yeah. all right uh, I have met on uh, some physicists a number of physicists uh, who a couple of them Larry Domash John Hagler friends of mine that I've also uh, was able to meet and spend an afternoon with Brian Josephson, the Nobel laureate in physics. And uh, there was, and also the guy, I, I was at a conference and uh, the other one was, uh, I can't think of his name, but he wrote the Tao of physics. And I'm wondering I'm if you've ever had those conversations with your father about Vedic, Vedic knowledge, interior development, and, and the physical <laughs> universe and how that connection, I mean, you know, uh, it was fascinating, I can't say that I followed it at all, Uh, But uh, these guys who were first in physics and then got exposed to Eastern knowledge, uh, they were wildly excited about the the connection there. But no, no, that conversation
2: never took place.
1: Never. My father was a staunch materialist. So what he could measure was what he believed in. Now. The paradox is he was a particle physicist. So he'd speed up electrons and bomb them into (laughs) nuclei of atoms and and then study these particles, which is basically all math. They're not really measuring anything. But he asked me really profound questions from the time I was very young. And that's what really did it. So when he would explain about the atoms and how there's more space than matter, I remember as a, as a four and five-year-old, I would press my hand into the table and I would try to figure out why, if, if everything's made of, up of the same pieces, protons, neutrons, and electrons, and there's more space, and these electrons are just swirling around, how come when I press my hand on the table, <laughs> my hand and the table don't merge? And, that's what got me going. Is it really was er- an early sense of wow. non-separation, Very of universality. Yeah.
2: I wonder if kids now, because when I was in, uh, you know, a youngster, and I was forced to take a, a physics or chemistry class, um, there was no sense of mystery about anything. I wonder if kids today, now that. There's some more uh, maturation in, in the hard sciences. And, and we have terms like dark matter and dark <laughs> energy. And, and on television, they talk about how everything is mostly empty space that we don't know anything about. Um, I wonder if, if that kindles anything. What Do you see any, any of that in school? Do you bring in the sciences in, into what you're uh, bringing
1: i do i I bring in i bring in things like the double slit experiment so are is light a particle or a wave well it depends on what you want it to be and i describe (laughs) that to them and they're mind blown uh they you know teenagers are teenagers they're curious about how the world works and so you know we talk about things like that and i bring in things that I'm interested in and tell them about them. So, but I don't think they're taught that. I think education is, um, it's really like taken out the curiosity.
2: (laughs) But uh, one more question, uh, Mm -hmm. Dennis, it occurs to me. um, Do you bring in explicitly uh, what we would think of as uh, religious uh, precepts and concepts, uh, or do you just secularize all the spiritual uh, teachings so there's no uh, church state issues, uh, you know, to, to, yeah.
1: I do. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about the colonization of Eastern traditions. And I understand that, that, that secularization means that white male science is taking out the wisdom of Eastern traditions and, and that were black and brown traditions and taking out them out from the roots and claiming ownership and using the fMRI machine as the authority. I'm guilty of that to some degree because I do base a lot of my argument in science and research it's pragmatic um, and i but mostly i just allow the students to discover for themselves so i try not to give them words or concepts like impermanence or non or no self or you know interconnectedness i try not to give them concepts but i let them explore their experience
0: very good uh, and uh, tell us about your new book adventure in zanskar what brought what, what that about and what do what you hope people get from
1: that's it? That's my book. So yeah, I'm please, quite, hold it, please
0: hold it up again. So, so
1: I'll, I'll, I'll hold this. this up. So that's Adventure in Zanskar. It's my new book. And I will say that I'm quite proud of this one. This one is about the program. It's called The Conscious Classroom. Oh, very good. Which that's is great. the for principles of the program. And it Conscious won an Ipia Awards. We'll so have all
0: that like, information for our listeners and viewers. Yeah. We'll have all that posted up. So, yeah.
1: So this book... Um, It's just very close to my heart. I spent 12 months walking the Himalayas in different regions of North India. And this book is about a two-month journey that I made on my own in this little part of India, which is the northernmost tip of India. And geographically, it's the westernmost section of the Tibetan plateau. So it's the oldest Buddhist valley in the world. Uh, People have been practicing uh, Buddhism or the Bon religion, which was in, you know, is early non-dual meditation teachings for hundreds, if not thousands of years, 2000 years, maybe. And I went there, it was only seven years after the area had been open to travelers because it's a very contested region. It's China, of course occupies Tibet on one side, India's the central power, Pakistan is you know, just on the other side, Tajikistan and, and Russia above it. So it's in, it's this tiny little valley, but it's in a part of the world that's very contested. And I went there and I, with a paper map, no GPS, no internet, no roads, no electricity, And I decided that I was going to walk and I had a rough route that I was going to walk. I had, I really felt like I wanted to be in the high mountains and experience that and feel what it was like to really live in the high mountains. And I also wanted to be with the people Mm -hmm. because I had tasted Tibetan culture in Dharamsala and McLeod Ganj, where I lived for a year. And I really loved the Tibetan people and I didn't really wanna go to Tibet just because it's a different country now, post 1959 and the Chinese takeover than it was before. But Zanskar was a place where a similar culture had been in existence. And I was so touched when I was there uh, by the compassion, by the lightness of being, they were happy. They were raucous. They were fun-loving. The women were strong. They were fierce. They were wild. They were funny. Um, and I felt like when I was there, not only did I have very deep spiritual experiences, and I had big adventures, climbing sixteen thousand feet with tennis—you know, not climbing, walking up over 16,000 feet with tennis shoes and nothing else. (laughs) um, But the people gave me faith in what's possible. And that has stayed with me. That was 1983. So Mm -hmm. it's a long time ago. It's almost 40 years, right? You know, we're 2022 now. Uh, And it gave me hope.
2: So this is a memoir of that experience and essentially, maybe even a, a tribute to the, the people you met.
1: Yeah. It comes from journals that I wrote at the time. And so I, it is a memoir and it takes you through from that time in that voice. It also tells you a bit about Buddhism, uh, about the culture, about I was exploring questions at the time of the westernization and questioning the impact I was having. I wanted to be there. I was somewhat culturally sensitive, but I knew I was an American and that was going to leave a footprint that I wished it wouldn't, but I knew it was going to. So I questioned a lot of those things at the time and, and all of those layers are in the book.
2: What do you hope readers get out of it?
1: what i hope and what i've heard is all different levels of people have had feel inspired and encouraged so i've met people who've read this who are like us or so they've been on they've been spiritual practitioners for 40 50 years and they felt reinvigorated and inspired again so that really touched me and i've met 20 somethings and 30 somethings who who said your struggle with your mind is the same as my struggle with my mind and the way that you got you know were able to work with that gave me some footing to deal with my own whatever it is you know anxiety neurosis fear
0: very good any final uh points or that you'd like to leave our listeners and viewers with
1: Well, I would encourage everyone to have no limits on the adventure that you can have right now, whether it's the pandemic or whether you feel like the great adventures have already been done and there's nothing left, that there's an inner adventure that's calling and it's important and the world needs it. The world needs bright lights. The world needs people who are happy. The world needs people who shine with with spiritual sustenance and and that richness of of a deeply considered inner life that's dedicated to bringing a a higher order of coexistence into this world we just need it nothing could be more important right now so that's what i'd encourage everyone to do and take care Mm. of themselves
0: great great message thank you so very much amy
2: I have one final question, if I may. You were part of a of a of a uh, spiritual community for a long time in a rural place. Now you're in a big city, working uh in rugged neighborhoods and all that. Is there anything do you miss being in the community? Is Are there things you miss about the community? Are there things you're happy to not be part of anymore? I ask this because I know so many people, including Dennis and me, who were once part of a tight-knit spiritual community. There's a feeling of liberation when when you're on your own and you're independent and there's also stuff you miss. Do you experience that?
1: I feel like, uh, I don't miss anything. I feel that I, I fulfilled that, that yearning uh, of being together. Um, but and I feel like a lot of things that I learned about the dynamics of human interaction have enabled me to be very compassionate with the suffering right. of people who grow up in a very different life right. than mine. Because when you go through spiritual trials and tribulations, you're pushed to the edge in many different ways. And I'm able to understand and recognize mm-hmm. trauma and, and recognize um, where a certain type of container needs to be held so somebody can right. come through on their own in their own time and in their own way. So it's really helped me with that and, and really be able to be there um, for people very who, who have very different life experiences than mm-hmm. me. I think that recent, uh, the great Master Titnat Han passed, Uh, recently last week and I wanted to watch and participate in some of the live stream of his the honoring of his life and I was very moved by his sangha Mm. he created a beautiful community and Mm. although I don't long to join a community like that I think that the presence of a community that is so Caring and deep practitioners is an important. It's important. It's an important marker or holder in culture for people and for people who haven't experienced deep community. I would encourage them uh, if they're polled, to find a place like that and and do a short retreat just to experience mm-hmm. what that level of commitment uh, can look like mm-hmm. in a in a collective. Right.
0: I, I just wanted to add to that that uh, there's a line in uh, Somerset Maugham's book The Razor's Edge, which that book had a big impact on me mm-hmm. back in the day. Uh, and and uh, the teacher was saying to the, the main character, uh, it's easy to be it's easy to be enlightened. I forget the exact words on a mountaintop. It's when you go into the you know, and it's, it was going back and and uh, so you live in a community, you have the deep spiritual experience and all. Then you take it into the world, and and there's more challenge there. And then you really see how you much you've stabilized that inner development, inner life, and obviously from your work and the success of your work, you've done a, you've brought that enlightenment uh, into the world and and have held it and 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 in a position to share it with others. But probably it was your time being more inward and away from everything that helped to develop that strength that you brought into the world and continue to bring in.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. We love the work you're doing in the schools. We recommend people look into it um, and
0: if you could hold follow up the, the, book the links.
2: Right. And Adventures in Zanskar, A Young Woman's you. yeah, Solitary Journey to Reach Physical and Metaphysical Heights. There you go. Thanks I for being with us. Thank All you so right. much. Keep Thank you up so much. the good work. There you go. Hold on, I have to <laughs> I <can't, laughs> Why am I not seeing how to shut off the uh video? edit this out. It's a good okay. Part. Left. very real. Now I see it. I